word that we're basically is just an opportunity and season in the church calendar to be able to see how we remember and look at how Christ suffered and died for us. But it doesn't end there. Obviously, we see that on Easter, Jesus conquers death. And through his death and resurrection on the cross, we have faith to be able to live with hope. And in this Lenten sermon series, we've been looking at these questions that Jesus asked, right? He, has over, he asked over 300 questions in the Gospels. And as we look at these questions, we've been able to see how he pointedly asks us so that we might be able to reflect on what this means for us in following Jesus, not only to the cross, but also to his resurrection. And so as we look at this, let me just pray for us as we look at this question of who was it? That touched me. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. We thank you, God, that you not only give this to us just to tickle our ears, but Lord, this transforms our lives if we have faith to believe. And so Lord, I pray that you would give us that faith. Give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear so that, Lord, we might be transformed. So Holy Spirit, use these words. Hide me behind the cross. Let there be no distractions, but Lord, let, me, let this be a time, Lord, where we may be able to, like this woman, come to you in our desperation and be transformed, not because of what I say, but because of your words alone. Do that good work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today actually marks one year where everything came to a screeching halt. It was one year ago today that we no longer had our in-service or in-person Sunday services. Rather, as our session met on that Friday previous, we decided that we would halt our services and go to a virtual live service. And if you were there, or not there, but if you, if you came in and worshiped with us on Facebook, we were back in that little conference room, and there were just five of us recording this service on a little iPhone. As we look and reflect on this past year, I think one of the things that we've done is we've been able to re really reflect and lament the loss and the grief of what this pandemic has done to all of us. And it's not just the 500,000 plus that have died. It's not just the loss of students being able to go to school in person. It's not just the, the increased mental health awareness and the, the increase of suicide and depression amongst especially our students. But it's also all the ways personally that it has touched us and impacted us. We think about how in many ways for me as I reflect that it's really these two things that I've been able to really name. And it's community and touch. Community and touch. These two things that make us human. And when we go through really hard times, especially in crisis, these are the two things that actually carry us through. But these were the two things that we actually lost when we needed it most. And instead of community and human touch, what we faced over this entire year has been isolation. As we've reflected on this past year, whether it's been through 
journalists or news sources that you've, you read or follow. It's the isolation of patients who have been in the ICU alone because of this pandemic. It's friends and family members who had to grieve the loss of a loved one alone, isolated in an empty sanctuary by themselves and other friends and family members who had to be isolated in their living room by themselves, watching and grieving the loss of a loved one on a TV screen. It's the isolation that you feel maybe as a single person and knowing that there is no human touch that you can have because we've been taught, and rightfully so, to be able to contain the spread of this virus. Or when uh, you're hanging outside with maybe some kids and those parents remind you of your isolation and saying, oh no, don't go to that person because we don't want you to get this COVID virus. There's so many ways that we've actually felt the pain and loss because of the isolation that we felt over this last year. Maybe that helps us just begin to scratch the surface with this woman that we just read about. Maybe we can begin to understand her plight of her feeling isolated and the lack of touch that she experienced in her life. And why I say scratching the surface is because while we have experienced this for one year, what we see with this woman is that she has experienced this medical condition for 12 long years. Children, there's some of you right now in this room, you are not even 12 years old. And this woman has been suffering because of her medical condition. But what we're going to see here this morning is that when we go to Jesus in desperation, when we see this woman go to Jesus in desperation, he not only heals her physically, but he actually restores her completely and fully. And his question of who was it that touched me, it becomes this beautiful invitation to that transformative life that she has. And so as we look at this question that Jesus asked, we're going to just look at it in three ways. First, a desperate act a loaded question, and then an incredible response. So first, let's look at this desperate act from this woman. We see right away, and in all of the three Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're introduced to this woman who has this issue of bleeding, constant bleeding. And I think here, as I look at this story and as I've done research, it's not that she's on her cycle. It's that she has this hemorrhage that has been constantly making her suffer for 12 long years. And it's this hemorrhage, this medical condition that has caused her to constantly bleed and it has not stopped for these 12 long years. And obviously as we think about this, this has great physical impact for her, right? As we look at the story, what does Luke say? He says, she could not be healed by anyone. Any physician she went to, they could not solve her issue and bring healing to her hemorrhaging. Mark 5 actually talks about how she suffered much under many physicians that could not help her. When you think you could go to a physician or a doctor to get better, for her going to the doctor actually made it worse. 
But not only physically, we see religiously this impacted her because this bleeding and this hemorrhaging, what did this do to her? It made her ceremonially unclean. So this prevented her from being able to enter into the synagogue and participate in the religious gatherings and events that happened for her community, her religious community. She was unable to engage and be a part of this community that she had been a part of for her life. But not only religiously, but socially as well. Not only was she not able to participate in the synagogue that she belonged to, but she also was socially ostracized because of her being ceremonially unclean. If she sat down on a chair, that chair became unclean. If she touched anybody, she was deemed, they would be deemed unclean. And they would have to go through this process and ritual to be made clean again. And so you could think about this for someone who's been 12 years experiencing this kind of hemorrhaging. And anything that she would touch would be unclean. Imagine how other people would perceive her. Why would you constantly want to go through this cleansing process over and over again? It's just not worth it to be a part of that social structure that was in place. But one of the things that we see also that impacted her because of her medical condition was her financial situation. What we see here is that she used up everything, right? She had spent all her living on physicians. Her medical condition caused her to be absolutely broke. And when you understand poverty, many times as we even have seen through this pandemic, it's those who are poor, not because of any fault of their own many times, but because they have no social structure or safety net to be able to rely on others. And here we see that it impacted her to the point where her medical condition turns her into a poor woman. What you see here is that she is absolutely desperate she has tried every single thing to be able to get better and in her 12 years nothing has worked but not only has nothing worked it has made it worse and she is suffering those are the words used in the gospels but here what we see is that in the midst of her suffering in her desperation she hears about jesus she gets a hold of his teachings. She hears about his miracles. And she has this desperate moment to be able to say, I'm going to risk everything and put my faith in this person that I've heard about and not go to him, but secretly in hiding, I'm going to come near him, come from behind him and touch not him physically, but the fringe, not the garments, but the fringe of his garments. And if I touch him, maybe I'll be clean. That was amazing faith for her to think that that would be possible. Why? Because in that worldview, you know what everyone thought? That cleanliness or uncleanliness only worked one way. Her touching someone would make every other person unclean. There was no worldview to say that her touching someone actually worked the other way where that person's righteousness or holiness would actually make her better. But she has this desperation, and in that desperation, a faith to believe that this Jesus, 
would actually make her clean. That was astounding. It was revolutionary for someone to think like that. But she has that faith. And what does she do? She touches him. She comes from behind. Actually, that's what Luke says. And touches him in the midst of this huge crowd. We're introduced to that. Jesus went and the people pressed around him. She touches him in secrecy. And she is immediately healed. Immediately healed is what Luke says. Twelve years of suffering and gone in an instant. Amazing. It brings us to the second point here. This loaded question. Or maybe a better way to think about this. It's an inviting question. From verses 45 through 47. We're not given any explanation of how Jesus knows that there's been power that has been drained from him. But that's what's given here. That's the account. And so what does he do? He turns around to figure out who was the one that touched him. And it's a loaded question. He says, who was it that touched me? And everyone denies it, right? Everyone's saying, I didn't touch you. I didn't touch you. When in actuality, everyone's pressed against him. And this is one of those comical moments where, of course, it's Peter again, right? Peter, being the extroverted one, goes, dude, Jesus, like, what are you talking about? There are hundreds of people who have been touching you. We are jam-packed together. And you're asking who has touched you? Everyone's been touching you. And Jesus responds, no. The power has gone out from me. Who is it that touched me? And it's in that moment when Jesus asked this question, this woman knows she has been seen. She knows it. In the midst of her hiding, in the midst of her secrecy, in the midst of her shame, in the midst of her suffering, she knows in Jesus' question, it's an inviting question that exposes her for the first time. She is maybe in trouble. She's been caught. She's been exposed. And that's why this is such a loaded question because for her, she is frightened, right? Luke says she comes trembling. Why? Well, like I said earlier, if you touch anybody, especially a rabbi or a teacher of the synagogue, that was costly for that person because they would have to go through the entire ritual of being made clean again. And you would never do that. That was a social faux pas. It was something that you would not do as someone who is ceremonial unclean. And she does this and she is frightened and she's trembling because she's been caught and exposed. And she doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. Is Jesus going to condemn her? Shame her? Ridicule her? Punish her for her actions? But does he? He doesn't. Rather, what does Jesus do? Jesus' question doesn't expose her to shame her, but rather he asks this question to bring her into the light for the first time in 12 years. To declare publicly in front of everyone that was there, this huge crowd, this testimony of what God has done for her. She had faith to believe that just by merely touching his garment, she would be healed. And she explains from the beginning of her suffering and of her illness to how Jesus has healed her in that moment. And I love how Luke describes this. Luke in verse 47 says, She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. It was a beautiful testimony of what God had done for her. 
In other words, as we look at this story in verses 42 through 47, Jesus' question of who touched me initiated this intimate and profound relationship between Jesus and the woman. Jesus could have easily just let it happen and continue on his way. He was actually on his way to heal this, this sick girl, Jairus' daughter. But instead, he turns around and asks. He could have let it happen, let her be healed, and let her go on her merry way. But he doesn't. Why? Because that wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough for this bleeding woman. The question was loaded because her, feel, her physical healing wouldn't have been enough. Jesus wanted her to encounter the living God and be restored completely. And that's what we see happen here. One scholar in the pillar commentary said this, Jesus is not content to dispatch a miracle. He wants to encounter a person. That's why he asked this question. He wants her to encounter the living God and be restored completely, not just physically. And that's what happens in my third point here, this incredible response from Jesus. In verse 48, as this story concludes, what does Jesus say to her? He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Think about this. I'm just going to break this up into these three phrases that Jesus uses. Daughter. Do you know this is the only time in all of the gospel accounts that Jesus uses this familial endearment? It's the only time. With this woman who has been suffering, living in shame, in hiding for 12 long years. In this moment, Jesus decides to call her daughter. A woman who's been rejected, isolated, is now brought into the family of God and loved as God's own dear child. She's given dignity. She's given worth. Jesus has lifted her out of years of shame, insecurity, and hiding and called her daughter. He has brought her into the family of God. And I know that shame can have such a powerful impact on us as human beings. And it can have that power over us. We're being called son or daughter. Knowing that you are adopted into the family of God is still not something that you could actually grasp and hold on to. But you've been given a new name. Your past does not, I, does not describe you. Your past is not your identity, whether you've been sinned against or the sins that you have committed. But rather, your identity is one who is called son or daughter by the great high king. That is an incredible thing. I remember seeing a video a few years ago of these two little children, about 10 and 11 years old, a, a, a boy and a girl. And they went to Disney World. And their foster parents wanted to treat them one last time. And they got to actually meet Mickey Mouse, of all people. And Mickey Mouse, as they hug and embrace, something that's probably not happening right now in Disney World, right? But as they hug and embrace, Mickey Mouse actually has these two pieces of paper for each child. And as Mickey Mouse gives it to these kids, it is their adoption papers. 
They have a new name, a new last name. And in that moment, these two kids are weeping and crying. And these parents who were foster parents are now their mom and dad. And they hug and embrace. And obviously, any, any adoption story that I read, I just, I just break down in tears. Because that points us to the greater story of our Heavenly Father who calls us our sons and daughters. That is who we are, and she is given this beautiful identity. She belongs to God. But we also see here that he says, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Now think about her faith. It's not a perfect faith by any means. Her faith is like a mustard seed. It's like this tiny little imperfect small seed. And yet, God uses that to heal her and restore her. Kent Hughes, a pastor and and scholar, said this. He said, Christ honored her fledgling faith. It was a fledgling faith. It was broken. It was one of fear. It was one of hiding. And yet, she believed, and it was enough. It was enough for her to just think that she could touch the fringe of his garments. And God honored that. And that's an invitation for us that whatever faith you have, Jesus receives it. And what we see is that however way you come, whether out of shame, brokenness, guilt, fear, what we see with this woman and with many stories that I hear is that you will find yourself eventually prostrate on your knees at Jesus' feet. Are you willing to pursue him? Are you willing to follow him? No matter how imperfect your faith is, isn't that how we all begin? All of us need greater theological training, but God meets us where we are and moves us forward in incremental steps. And that's what we see with this woman. But lastly, what does Jesus say? He says, go in peace. It is this beautiful pronouncement of a benediction of peace for this woman. Think about where she began when she first meets Jesus. She came in turmoil, isolation, rejection, brokenness, and in desperation. But how does she leave? She leaves with peace physically, body restored socially restored into the community of God's people and spiritually entered into a relationship with Jesus and adopted into the family of God. That is the beautiful story of how Jesus pronounces peace and his benediction over us. Are you willing to come to him and receive this kind of peace in your life no matter what you go through? We can have this kind of peace that Jesus offers you and me. But we, what we realize in him calling us son and daughter to say and assure us that our faith has made us well, to be able to give us this benediction of peace, we have to realize that this comes at a cost. This comes at a great cost in Jesus himself. As he looks to Jerusalem, knowing that he's going to die on the cross, as we come to the table this morning, We recognize that it comes at a great cost for us who can experience this benediction of peace to be able to be adopted into the family of God because Jesus, the Son of God, was forsaken by his Father so that we might be adopted into the family. 
Jesus, who was pure, spotless, took on the pollution that we all have in our guilt and in our shame and our brokenness and puts that upon himself. And the peace that we receive, he received none on that Good Friday. He was forsaken. He was tortured. He was rejected so that we might be able to experience the peace and the pronouncement of that benediction over us each and every single day of our lives as we follow Jesus. That is a, a, an amazing thing. But he did it for you and for me. And as we come to the table this morning, we're not experiencing the wrath and the condemnation that we might be afraid of, right? We're like that woman who comes. And we think we might be condemned and scorned, but rather Jesus was, so that when we come to the table, we experience his delight and love. Are you ready to receive that? Are you ready to follow him so that as we come to the table this morning, we might be able to experience the peace that only Jesus can offer? The story as I conclude this morning, I remember when our oldest boy was four years old, and growing up in California, in Southern California, the ocean is everything to me. And so for me to bring Stephen to the Pacific Ocean for the first time in his life was really important. And so here he was in his little board shorts, and he's excited. He comes to the ocean and meets the Pacific Ocean for the first time, and he steps in, and he sees this wave coming, coming towards him. And he screams out. He's like, woohoo! And as the wave hits him, he falls back, never experiencing how powerful the ocean is. And he starts wailing and crying because all that salt water and the shock of what he experienced. And I pull him out. And he has experienced the power and the wonder of the Pacific Ocean. But you know why I share this story? is I feel like this woman, she thinks she's coming to touch Jesus' garment. She thinks she's just experiencing a little stream, a little river. But as I was reminded two nights ago from a book, she didn't experience a stream or a little, little river. She experienced the roaring power of God's immense love for you and for me. Come and receive that amazing unconditional love of Jesus. Are you willing to follow him? No matter how imperfect our faith is, no matter what you're hiding from, do you have the faith like this woman to come and you will find yourself prostrate at his feet and you will follow him because of his grace and his love for you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for, for your son who in his immense love, sacrificed everything for us. That as we come to the table, that you, you would remind us of that, of your incredible, immense love that you showed for us. That because of your suffering, because of the wrath and scorn that you experienced, we will never experience that. So Lord, I pray that as we come to the table, strengthen us, give us the grace Give us the courage that we need to be able to come to you and continue to follow you. For some of us who may be, be other than Christian, Lord, may they continue to maybe be part of this crowd that presses in on you. But Lord, I pray that you would meet them where they are at. 
so that they might experience the peace, the wonder, joy, and love that can only come in you. So do that good work as we eat and drink this morning. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.